Thank you, Lois. I'd like to have us turn to our text for this morning. Uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. Like we've already said, this is Palm Sunday, and so we're going to read Luke's account of that this morning in Luke 19. So Luke 19, verse 28 through 40, this is what Luke writes describing Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. After Jesus had said this, he's just finished telling a parable here. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the hill called the Mount of Olives, uh, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and put him on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. As he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God with loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, Jesus has been on a journey, a road trip, if you will. At least that's how Luke frames Jesus' ministry in this gospel. We'll actually talk about this more uh, when we make our way through the gospel of Luke uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, but Luke organizes his account of Jesus' ministry into a travelogue of sorts. Um, a geographical journal, a trip itinerary that chronicles the long, slow, winding road that takes Jesus to here, the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you were a first century religious Jew and somebody told you that someone claiming to be the Messiah was coming to Jerusalem, you would have immediately understood what that meant. But unlike some of the other gospel writers, uh, Matthew and Mark, uh, Luke wasn't writing for a Jewish audience with his gospel here. Instead, he was writing for a Gentile or non-Jewish audience. And so Luke's readers wouldn't have been as familiar with the Jewish beliefs uh, or expectations about the Messiah. They wouldn't have understood the significance of, of Jerusalem as a holy city. And so they wouldn't have understood why Jesus coming to Jerusalem here in this text is such a big deal. And so, as a way of helping them understand that. Luke structures his gospel in a way that actually creates anticipation in his readers. Uh, anticipation for our text this morning, anticipation for Jesus coming here to Jerusalem, and anticipation for everything that's about to come in the chapters right after this as well. All the way back in chapter nine, verse 51, Ten full chapters before our passage this morning, Luke begins to describe this long, slow journey that brings Jesus here to the city of Jerusalem. And here in our text, he's finally arrived. Now, according to a theologian and biblical scholar N.T. Wright, that journey would have been an interesting one. 
Uh, That's because the route that Jesus and his disciples took to get to Jerusalem wasn't a direct one. Instead, it was sort of a meandering journey through the ancient province of Palestine. Starting up in, in the lush, gentle, fertile hills of Galilee in the north, they would have slowly made their way south into the historic territory of Samaria. From there, they actually would have sort of wound their way over into the desert and wilderness and and made sort of a hot, dusty journey through the wilderness until they finally got to Jericho, just outside of Jerusalem. And from there, that would have been the last leg of this journey before they began the long, continuous climb towards Jerusalem itself, the city on a hill, Mount Zion. Now, I've talked about this before, but Mount Zion is actually kind of a generous name. Uh, That's because it's actually more of a glorified hill uh, than a mountain. And it's not even that big of a hill, at least once you're there. But that last leg of Jesus' journey from Jericho, kind of right in the center of that map, up to Jerusalem is exactly that. It's a journey up. And that's because Jericho is actually one of the lowest places on the face of planet Earth. In other words, that final approach that Jesus takes to Jerusalem would have been one long, hot uphill hike out of the desert, out of the wilderness, up, up, and up towards the city. Not an easy trip, especially in sandals, okay? I actually know a thing or two about that because a few years ago when I was in Israel and Palestine, I bought a pair of what are called Jesus sandals, which are the kind of sandals people think that they would have worn back then. And I had kind of this nice idea. I was like, I'll wear my Jesus sandals in the same places where Jesus himself walked, you know, and uh, I'll get to experience the same sort of thing as Jesus. And so for the next couple of days, as I walked around in those sandals that had unworn leather that had never been broken in, um, my feet started to bleed. I ended up with blisters all over them and my feet were caked in dust. It didn't end up being a very fun idea, but I definitely gained a new appreciation for why foot washing was such a big deal back then. The point is that the climb out of Jericho wouldn't have been just a walk in the park, okay? This would have been a difficult journey. It would have been hot, it would have been uphill, and it would have been hard on the feet. And yet there would have been at least some relief for the disciples along the way as they followed Jesus to Jerusalem. That's because as Jesus and his disciples made their way closer and closer to the city, that desert wilderness that they've been in for a little while now would have started to slowly fade away. And instead, the lush beauty of Palestine that they hadn't seen since they were up north in Galilee would have started to reappear. As they neared the city, they would have slowly but surely found themselves surrounded by life and vegetation. And that's because in the weeks leading up to this time of year, springtime is when the rains come and Zion would have bloomed in all of its glory. While Zion can be kind of barren uh, much of the year, it's known for its unsurpassed beauty in the spring as the grass and the flowers and the trees and everything sort of comes back to life. In other words, just in time for the pilgrims who are flocking for the city, just in time for the joy and celebration of the Passover festival, just in time for Jesus and his disciples to arrive in Jerusalem, Zion would have come alive. And so we can understand why Jesus' disciples break into song here, right? After all, they've been with Jesus through this whole journey. They were with him up there in the north in the beauty of Galilee as he taught and preached and healed. They've journeyed with him into Samaria and the opposition that they faced there. Then they continued with him through the barren wilderness after that. They were with him in Jericho as he prepared for the final leg of this trip and now they're with him here too 
following him as he ascends towards the beautiful, blooming city of Jerusalem. And so like people sometimes do as they approach something significant, something meaningful, something important, Jesus' disciples break into song. It's not just because their journey is at an end, okay? And it's not just because they've left the difficulty of the wilderness behind them. It's not even just because they get to enjoy the springtime beauty of Zion. Rather, the disciples sing here because all along the way, all throughout this journey, the whole time as they follow Jesus, wherever he's gone, he's proclaimed the kingdom of God. He's talked about it, preached about it, taught about it. He's promised that one day that kingdom will come. In fact, he said that in him the kingdom has already started. And now here, in this text, as they make their way to Jerusalem, he's proving it. That's what the disciples see in Jesus coming to Jerusalem here. They see him making everything that he's been talking about throughout his entire ministry real. They see him not just proclaiming the kingdom anymore, not just talking about it, not just teaching about it, not just preaching about it, but actually showing up to Jerusalem as the king of that kingdom. That's what, the, that's what the disciples recognize in Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem here. And for them, that's something to celebrate, right? That's something to sing about. That's something we're throwing a party for. And so that's what they do. On the road during their final approach to Jerusalem, the disciples break into song and celebration. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is the moment they've been waiting for. The Messiah, the Savior, the King has finally come. Luke takes 10 chapters in his gospel to tell us about this this trip. 10 chapters to build anticipation in his readers. 10 chapters to help them understand the significance of what's going on here. 10 chapters to hint at how monumental this moment really is. And now here it's all finally coming to a head. In other words, if we didn't already understand that Holy Week, which is what this week is, if we didn't already understand that Holy Week is significant, important, meaningful, the way that Luke tells this story reminds us that it is. And I think we feel that today, even still, right? We feel that expectation, that anticipation, that building sense of significance, because the truth is we've actually been on a similar journey these last five weeks. You see, during the season of Lent, we too have wound our way through a wilderness of sorts. We've left the lushness of our everyday lives and stepped out into the barrenness, the bright sadness of this season of the church year. Like Jesus and his disciples on their way to Jerusalem, we too have entered the desert. You see, in scripture, the wilderness, the desert, is a place of special significance. It's a place of temptation and testing, but it's also a place of formation It's a place where people would go to strip away the things in their lives that stood between them and God and their relationship with him so they could come face to face with him once again and refocus on the work that he was doing in and through them. And the fact is that the season of Lent is meant to function in a similar way for us still today. Lent is wilderness space. It's the desert It's a time for us to strip away the things in our lives that are standing between us and God. It's a season where we can return to God in repentance and confession in order to recommit ourselves 
to him in our relationship with him. And yet as much as we spend time in the wilderness during Lent, we don't stay in the wilderness, right? This is a journey for a reason because we're heading somewhere, we're going somewhere. Like Jesus and his, and his disciples, we too have been traveling through the barrenness of this season towards something. We too are moving towards the holy city of God. We too have traveled through Lent, through the dust and heat and difficulty of this season And now we're climbing slowly but steadily towards the mount of God, towards the peak of this time of year, to the climax of Christ's ministry, to the pinnacle of this story that God is telling. My friends, we are moving towards Easter. And so like Jesus' disciples on the journey to Jerusalem, we too are ready to celebrate. We too are ready to burst in a song. We too are ready to praise the Savior King who has come to inaugurate his salvation begin his reign over all things, and establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The only problem, though, is that this isn't only a week of joy and celebration. The singing and dancing are part of what's going on here, and they're an important part, too, but they're not the full picture. You see, the fact of the matter is that Jesus doesn't arrive in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as a victorious conqueror on a white horse. Instead, he comes as a king of peace, riding on a donkey. And contrary to the framed portraits of him that we might have grown up uh, with in our homes or that you can buy at Christian bookstores, Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem with a chiseled physique and perfect hair, you know, blonde and blue-eyed. Rather, he comes as a suffering servant. That's because according to Luke, the way he paints this scene here, in the midst of the joy and celebration, the singing and dancing, the anticipation and expectation, Jesus enters Jerusalem actually wrapped in darkness and trouble with his brow furrowed. In fact, just after this passage, we find him weeping for the city that he's just entered. You see, for Jesus, the wilderness isn't actually behind him. He hasn't come out of the wilderness He hasn't left it. Instead, he's brought it with him into Jerusalem. And that's because he knows that the worst still lies ahead. His disciples don't see that. Okay, they don't pick up on it. They're too excited. They're too caught up in the moment. They're too preoccupied with the joy and celebration. The Savior, the Messiah, the King, he's here. And they're right. Because Jesus is all those things. He is Savior, Messiah, and King. And he has come. He is there. He has arrived. It's just not in the way that they were expecting. You see, by Jesus' time, Jewish theology had come to expect a certain kind of Messiah. He was going to be a political leader, um, a king who would liberate Israel from her foreign occupiers. First, it had been the Assyrians who had invaded and taken over. Then it was the Babylonians. After that, it was the Persians. Then it was the Macedonians. And now finally, during Jesus' time, it was the Romans. But someday, the Jewish people believed, someday it would be different because someday the Messiah would come. Someday he would come and he would drive back the forces of Caesar He would come to liberate the people of Israel. He would come to reestablish the kingdom of David. He would come to restore Israel to her former glory. That's the kind of Messiah that the Jewish people were expecting. That's the kind of vision that the disciples had dancing in their heads as they danced their way down the road with Jesus into Jerusalem. That's the kind of savior that they're singing about here. 
That's not the kind of Savior Jesus was, though. First, he hadn't come to drive back the forces of Caesar. He'd come instead to drive back the forces of another ruler, Satan. And he hadn't come to liberate only the people of Israel. He'd actually come to liberate from sin all those who put their faith in him. He hadn't come to reestablish David's kingdom, but instead the kingdom of God. And he hadn't come to return Israel to her glory days. He'd come instead to give glory to his father. And he wouldn't do all of that through military might or political intrigue the way that we might or in the ways of the world. Instead, he would do it by dying a cursed death as a criminal on a cross. Again, the disciples hadn't realized all that. They were too busy looking ahead to Christ's victory They were too distracted by the bloom of spring all around them. They looked around themselves and they thought that they'd left the wilderness, the desert, the barrenness behind. And so they missed the part where Jesus was going to have to suffer and die. They missed that in the midst of the joy, the celebration, and the victory, that there was also going to be trouble and darkness. What they didn't realize quite yet is that the Messiah they were following into Jerusalem was not walking towards a triumphal coronation, but instead towards a cross, towards his death, towards a grave. And my friends, that's the Messiah that we follow, too. All of Lent, we look forward to Easter. Like the disciples, we too anticipate the joy, the celebration, and the victory, and we should. After all, that's what Easter is all about. But we would do well to remember that before the celebration and joy, there is trouble and death. You see, the Messiah we follow on this journey does not lead us out of the barren wilderness into a life of comfort and ease. I think sometimes as North American Christians, we forget this. In the midst of the joy and celebration that we experience as Christian believers, there is also at times darkness and difficulty. In addition to singing and dancing, there will also be times when we will weep. In addition to celebratory parades and victorious entrances, there will also be wilderness moments of sadness and suffering. Is that the kind of Messiah we want? Is that the kind of Savior we believe has liberated us? Is that the kind of King we follow? Because that's the one we have. When we talk in the church about being Jesus' hands and feet in the world, I think that sometimes we forget those hands and feet were pierced. Are we ready for that? Are we ready to drink the cup that he drank? Are we ready to follow him where he leads? Because as Jesus himself told Peter, it might not be where we want to go. My friends, the simple fact is that following Jesus leads us to our death. That's the first part of the gospel message. Before we can understand anything else in the gospel, we have to understand that. Being a Christian means dying to our sins. We follow our Messiah from the green, fertile hills of Galilee through the wilderness and up the long, hot climb towards the cross. And we enter the final leg of that trek today on Palm Sunday. We enter the city of God with our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we too need to know what waits us when we get there. Because at the end of this week, there won't be a victory parade. There won't be singing and dancing. That all starts next week. At the end of this week, the only crown that we see is one I don't think we'd want. 
At the end of this week, there will be betrayals and denials. At the end of this week, there will be hammers and nails and a cross and a grave. And yet this exactly, this precisely is why this time of year, this season of Lent is so important to our faith as Christians. You can probably tell this by now, but I love the liturgical calendar in the church. And the reason is because it instills a significance into our faith in a way that nothing else can do. And this season of Lent is part of that. It gives us the template, the mold, the pattern for what our life looks like as believers in Jesus Christ. You see, as Christians, we shouldn't only live this way of repentance and confession and fasting during Lent. Instead, this Lenten journey that, we've, that we're coming through right now should, to some degree, be a way of life for us. That's because being a Christian and following Christ includes a daily dying to our sins. Each new day, we rise to follow our Savior. Each new day, we walk this long, meandering, dusty, hot path to the cross. Each and every new day, we put our sins, our old way of life, our old selves behind us. Each new day, we die a little more to the sinful people we once were, and we do all of that so that we can instead come alive in Christ. That brings us to the gospel this morning. You see, we die with Christ, but we also rise with him. That's actually the theology of of baptism in a nutshell, okay? That's actually what the sacraments are. Um, They're sermon illustrations, really. They're meant to illustrate our faith for us as Christians, our faith as believers. They're meant to illustrate the gospel for us. That's what the sacraments are. And the early church had a pretty explicit way of doing that when it came to baptism. You see, the early church didn't have nice baptismal fonts like this, okay, where it's a stand with a nice glass bowl and a little bit of, little bit of water in it. Um, don't get me wrong, I love our new sacrament furniture, okay? But the early church didn't have stuff like this. Instead, when it came to a baptismal font, what the early Christians would often do is they would actually dig a hole into the floor of their church and fill that with water. That was a baptismal font in early Christian churches. It was a watery hole. In fact, sometimes they would even shape that watery hole to look like a grave or a tomb or a coffin. Why would you do that? Why would you shape a baptismal font to look that way? Well, because the theology of baptism included exactly what we're talking about, dying to our sins. And the idea was that when somebody came forward for baptism in the early church and they walked down into that watery hole, that watery tomb, that watery grave, the person they once were never came back out the other side. In fact, the person who walked back out on the other side of baptism, on the other side of that watery hole, that watery grave, on the other side of the waters of baptism in Jesus Christ was an entirely new person, an entirely new creation in Jesus Christ. That's the theology of baptism. It's dying with Christ, being entombed with him, and then rising to new life with him as well. And that's true for us today. I don't want to steal Easter's thunder in a week, but even as we follow Christ on this journey, even as we walk this road towards suffering and sadness, even as we go to the cross to die with him, we know that like him, we don't stay dead. We don't stay in the tomb. We don't stay in the grave. Instead, our Messiah, our King, our suffering Savior leads us to our death, yes, but he does so 
in order to give us life. And so we go on this journey with our Messiah. We make our way through the wilderness. Each day we journey towards the cross. Each day, believing in the good news of his grace, we die with our Lord, but we do so so that we can come alive as his people in this world. Even as we yearn for the joy and celebration that Easter brings in a week, we know that there is barrenness before the bloom. But we also know that the bloom, our new life in Christ, will come indeed. And that's what we anticipate and look forward to in one week's time. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we call our life of faith a journey, and that's because it is. As disciples of your Son, still today, we journey with him. And Lord, the journey isn't always easy. It leads us to our death. It kills away the parts of us that shouldn't be part of us. But you lead us through that journey to bring us to new life in you so that we can truly live as your people again. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, and your Holy Spirit who guides us through it all. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.